Father, your word says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. And we thank you that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To you, Lord Jesus, be glory in the church and to all generations forever and ever. Father, we are humbled today that though our sins are great, your mercy is greater, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We don't deserve it. It's unmerited. But you gave us your best in giving us your son. May we never forget that we're not our own, that we have been made slaves of Christ. And as slaves, we are called to serve him and his people. And we are trying to discern in these days, Father, what that looks like, how we can practically do it week from week, month from month, year from year, until you take us by death or by rapture. So as we open your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that the spirit whom you gave us, just as you promised by the prophets and as Jesus spoke of, may he Fill us and illumine the truth that is here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry as you come alongside. We admit that without you, we can't do anything. So help us today that we would not just be those who hear another sermon, but those who would apply your word. So use me, I pray, to the glory of Jesus in your holy name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12 as we continue our uh, study on the discovery and the use of spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to use a number of passages today as we have been, but we'll use as our launch pad Romans 12. The subject of spiritual gifts is, is dis, uh, discovered and described uh, and discerned through many, many passages throughout the New Testament, but there are four central passages. They're easy to remember. You remember two fours, two twelves, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those are the four major passages that addresses the subject of spiritual gifts. And if you've read Paul's epistles, you'll know that there are three elements of the Christian life that he's particularly concerned about, three areas in which he does not want you to be ignorant. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. And many Christians are ignorant of the schemes, of the methodologies of the evil one. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep, those who have, are dead. And so he tries to dispel that ignorance, and he tells us something about the catching up of the church, the saints that are translated off the ground up into heaven, and the dead in Christ will come up out of the graves. But then he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. And so you can see the topic this morning is fitting into the church. Now, most Christians may know a little something about temptation and the schemes of the devil. Some Christians know a little something in the doctrine of end things, eschatology, about 
that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and they may even have opinion on how that will unfold. But sadly, most Christians know very little on this topic of spiritual gifts. Do you know that you're our gifted child? I'm not talking about a natural talent that was given to you in your physical DNA at birth. Maybe you're artistic, maybe you're mechanically inclined, maybe you can sing, maybe you are athletically gifted. I'm talking about a spiritual gift that on your spiritual birthday, if you've been born again, you have a spiritual birthday. And by the way, you need two if you're ever going to go to heaven. You have to have a physical birthday and you have to have a spiritual birthday. Jesus said you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. And on your spiritual birthday, God gave you an ability, a proclivity, a talent, a skill in which to serve Him and His people. And it's a privilege to be able to serve God's people out of your giftedness. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, gifts is italicized in the NASB, meaning it's not a part of the original. Literally, it says concerning the spirituals, or you could say concerning the things about the Holy Spirit. Brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. And then he says in verse 4 of that chapter, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. Then he adds, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So from this passage, three truths are clear. There are a lot of different spiritual gifts and he mentions. In fact, if you study the New Testament and put all the passages together, there are 20. So there are these different gifts that produce different kinds of ministries. And these different ministries produce different kinds of effects, and each are needed. Now, with that said, we are going to pick up in our launchpad passage, as I'm calling it, in verses 6 through 8. We've worked in the last two weeks through the first five verses, but to give us a running start, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. I hope you brought a Bible. If you're at home or on one of our campuses, you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible in your lap. Follow along. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I know there are many people here for the first time, many who have joined us for the first time online. And knowing from the master teacher, the greatest teacher who ever lived, the Lord Jesus, he taught by repetition. And by the way, if a pastor ever repeats himself and you start yawning, you have lost perspective. Because number one, if a church is healthy, there's always new believers. 
and there are people who need to hear for the first time maybe what you've heard for decades. It's dead churches that have a holy huddle that never baptize anyone, that just go for the deeper truth, so to speak, if they go for truth at all. And so Paul is going to repeat himself twice in our passage. And I want to review. Now, remember the broad context. If you were to read and reread the book of Romans, as this chart will help you to see, there are three principal divisions. Chapters 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section, and he deals with three major doctrinal areas, the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. Then when you turn to chapter 9, it's not a parenthesis in Romans, it's a continuation. He ended chapter 8 reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Well, if that's true, what about Israel? It seems like you have forsaken Israel. And so in the national section, the subject is Israel. He deals with their election in chapter 9. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to bring the Messiah. In chapter 10, he deals with their current rejection. Why are they in unbelief? In chapter 11, their future restoration. God is setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. And he's going to use the Jewish people just as he used them the first time. So the doctrinal section, the national section, then you come to the practical section. And again, he highlights three areas. And we're dealing with the first area, that is the subject of spiritual gifts. We've learned the principle that if you are ever going to discover your spiritual gift, you must walk in the will of God. You must find God's will for your life. And it's only as you find God's will that you will mature and your spiritual gift will begin to manifest itself. So we studied the principle of consecration. The chapter opens, therefore I urge you, brethren, and the therefore here is an urgent plea. He is saying, in light of everything I've taught you about the multiplied mercies of God in 11 chapters, this is a terrific idea. No, not that at all. He's not saying, well, I have a suggestion for you. No, not that at all. This is an imperative. This is a command from God Almighty. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the fact that God has given his son in saving us freely, we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and then implanting the Holy Spirit in us to be our helper and our comforter and our leader and the one who fills us for ministry. Because of the great and many varied mercies of God, he makes this appeal. Notice, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. Why mention the body? Because the body is the instrument of your soul and your spirit. The Bible speaks that man is trichotomous, sometimes in a broad sense, in two ways, soul and spirit. So Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? There he's using it in a holistic way, but in a technical way, the Bible says in passages like to the church at Thessalonica, may God fully sanctify you body, soul, and spirit. In a technical sense, your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. Your spirit is that part that has been quickened. And unless your inner man has been made alive, unless you're still dead in your sin, then you'll die and spend an eternity without Christ if you die in that state. And so Jesus said, you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. And so your body is totally who you are. Sometimes it's used in the Bible just to refer to your flesh, your, your skeleton and your skins. But most often it is used to describe your whole person your tongue, your hands, your feet, your mouth. It's all the instrument 
by which the soul and the spirit within you manifests itself. And so it has the idea of presenting your entire person to God, which he calls here in verse one, notice your spiritual service of worship. And we've noticed there's not a single word that can capture the meaning of the Greek. So the Net Bible renders it your reasonable service of worship. And of course, the Greek word, as I pointed out, is logikos, and we get our word logic from it. In other words, this is your most logical response. And the NASB puts reasonable out there on the margin if you have the New American Standard with footnotes. He's saying, listen, in light of what God has done for you, in light of the fact that what God is doing for you today, in light of the fact of what God promises to do for you in the future, you present yourself wholly and fully to Him. It's the most rational thing to do in light of the splendor, the glory, the mercy, the grace that He has shown you. And so critical to the discovery of your spiritual gift is this ongoing, day-by-day, living presentation of yourself to God. And if you're obeying the first command, then the second command can begin to unfold in your life. Notice, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, he's writing to Christians to save people. Why? Because it's possible for the child of God to be molded by the world instead of molded by the Word of God. Phillips, in his 1950 paraphrase, says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And Paul, throughout the Scripture, reminds us the way we are metamorphosized, if I can make up a word. Metamorphosis is the word that is, comes into English directly from the Greek word that is rendered transformed. The way you are changed and renewed in your mind is through Scripture. And he unfolds that time after time after time again. And that's why the church in America is so weak. Most churches, you don't even need a Bible to hear a sermon. You could get by because the pastor only looks at a couple of verses. And you can't be renewed and changed and transformed unless you are hearing God's Word. So finding your spiritual gift involves finding God's will. And that involves a presentation, it involves a transformation, and with it comes a realization. Look at verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of mind so you may prove, that's the realization, so that you may prove, test, experience, realize what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Those who discover the will of God realize it's not lacking in any respect. And so as you find the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, you're walking with the Lord, you start growing. Just like a baby who grows and you begin to see their talents and the way God created them, as you begin to grow spiritually, you begin to discover what your spiritual gift is. So it's almost like a formula here that he presents. I mentioned to you there's a presentation. When you add to that transformation, And so the flock needs to be fed, and that's a pastor's principal responsibility. Not to hold your hand when you're sick in the hospital, though I'd like to be there for every sick person. But a teaching pastor's responsibility is to feed the flock so that they can be transformed, and that brings about a realization. So if you want to fully realize and experience God's will for your life so that your spiritual gift 
begins to manifest itself. It starts with this presentation, this ongoing transformation, and you begin to see how God has gifted you. So there's the principle of consecration. And then if you remember in verses um, uh, three and four, we looked at the principle of evaluation. Notice verse three, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone, meaning every believer, all Christians who've been recipients of God's grace, I say to everyone among you, and then he squishes four times into one verse this word, think. Not to think, and the first word is hyperphroneo. Hooper, we get our word hyper from it. Don't hyperthink. And so the NASB renders it not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think for now, but to think for now, so as to have so for now, sound thinking or sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I think God wants us to think, and I think he wants us to think properly because he knows our tendency is potentially to think wrongly. And when you think about your spiritual life, the tendency, as I mentioned last time, is to go to one of two extremes. Some have an exaggerated view of their selves, and this happens when you forget the source, that God gave you the gift that you have. So if God gave you the ability to preach, it's by His grace. If God gave you the ability to serve, it's by His grace. If God gave you the ability to exhort, it's by His his grace. If He gave you the ability to lead, to show mercy, whatever your spiritual gift is, it is totally by His grace. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so if you feel indispensable to the work of God, just read verse 3, because there's only one who is indispensable, and that's the Lord Jesus, the head of the church. So one extreme is to think too highly. The other extreme is to think too lowly. One is self-admiration. The other is self-depreciation, and God is not pleased with either. Some think with this false humiliation, and it's a form of pride. And there's nothing more pathetic than a Christian who walks around with shrugged shoulders, looking down, thinking, I'm a nobody, I don't really matter to the work of God. No, you matter. And that's not humility, that's sin. And it's really unbelief, because it fails to acknowledge what God has said about you. The text says, God is allotted to each a measure of faith. So he says here, think so as to have sound judgment. And his solution for us is to begin thinking biblically so as to have sound judgment. And we saw, again, this word sound judgment is a compound word. Think so as to have proper thinking, sound thinking. It's a word that describes thinking within certain boundaries. And the boundaries that God has established for our thinking, especially on this subject of of spiritual gifts, is found within the Scripture itself. So we think sensibly as the CSB translation renders it. For he says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Paul is just reminding them that he is what he is by God's grace. This one who is a persecutor of the church. This one who imprisoned the saints of God. This one who is engaged in the very first martyr in all of church history. He led in the death of Stephen. 
He said, because of the grace given to me. You say, I was not a murderer like Paul. Listen, you had the potential. And when you put yourself up next to the Lord Jesus, the ground is level. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so we need to think soberly within biblical boundaries that your ability to serve is based in the same way God saved you totally by His grace. And not only do we have gifts by grace, what we're able to do and perform with those gifts is totally by His grace. Notice, think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. He doesn't say God has an, uh, given to each a certain charisma or a certain physical appeal or a certain personal dynamic. He's given to each of us a measure of faith. God wants you to know that He's doled out to you a measure of faith. And He's not talking about saving faith here. He's talking about faith as it relates to a particular gift that He has given you. And you need to trust Him. You need to serve Him as you find that particular gift. So God does not ask you to do anything that He hasn't first equipped you to do. And so God has a place for everyone listening today to serve in some local assembly somewhere. And God has given you a measure of faith in which to do that. It's called a spiritual gift. So again, four times over, think, 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 think here in verse 3. So it starts with thinking. And so, among other things, we've been educating ourselves on the subject of spiritual gifts. You need to become acquainted with the spiritual gifts. Some of you might want to take the spiritual gifts course that I have taught. It's online at the Institute of Biblical Studies. It's not for the faint of heart. It's 130-some pages long, and it goes through everything the Bible says, and then there's the tests, which some of you have taken online, and I hope you've done that. If you haven't, go to searchthescriptures.org and you'll find that exam, and it will really help you potentially. Now, I will say, again, that if you're a relatively new Christian and you take either the spiritual gifts inventory I wrote or someone else wrote, you may not distinguish yourself in any particular area. And that just means you haven't had enough time to grow yet. And again, like a newborn baby, you don't know what his talents are until he grows, and you don't know what your spiritual gift is until you grow. And sometimes I'll meet people who've been saved 20, 30 years, and they take a spiritual gifts inventory, and they still don't know what their spiritual gift is. What does that say? It just means that they've stayed a baby Christian most of their spiritual lives. If Dr. Billy Graham, he said it 25 years ago, that 90 to 95% of those in the American church have stayed baby Christians. They've never grown up. And I see that often, and it's sad when people don't grow and they don't, therefore, find out their spiritual gifts. So there has to be consecration. There has to be some thought, some evaluation. We need to think. But then there needs to be cooperation. And so we, we looked at verse 4 last time. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so he draws this comparison between the human body and the body of Christ. A healthy human body is well-coordinated. Each part of the body has a particular function. There's no rivalry within your physical body unless it's somehow sick and spasmodic. No, each part functions together. It's a coordinated effort under the head. Even so, every member of the body of Christ under our divine head, the Lord Jesus, has a function. So he applies the truth. Do you remember it? Verse 5. 
So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's a powerful statement. Individually members one of another. It's one thing for me to say, I belong to Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing for me to say, I belong to you. It's one thing to say, I'm related to God by faith in Christ. It's another thing to say, I'm related to you by faith in Christ. But you see, when you meet Christ, when you receive him, you become a child of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. And that makes us brothers and sisters. That gives us an affinity. And you know, you travel to other parts of the world, and you meet some born-again believer, and there is an instant kinship. Why? Because we're members of the same family. So we who are many in the body are members one of another. What does that mean? It means we need each other. We depend on each other. That's why this nonsense of the home church movement, where a dad has him and his kids and they call that church, that's no church. A church is a structured entity that God birthed on the day of Pentecost. It's organized because he's a God of order. There's elders, there's deacons, there's people that represent some 16 non-signed gifts in the body of Christ. There's the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there's a commitment to share the gospel first in your local entity, in your broader sphere, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So we're members one of another. And as members of each other, we should be able to recognize how God has created us. My hand has no problem in recognizing the mouth. And even so, if you have a particular spiritual gift, other spiritually mature people will be able to discern it. The church in Antioch was able to discern that Paul and Barnabas were called of God, gifted as missionaries to take the gospel to the world. And so they were sent out from that church. That church supported them and underwrote their ministry. Likewise, the church in the city of Jerusalem recognized the very first council that uh, James and Silas had an ability in which to speak and to communicate a very, very powerful message that's unfolded for you in Acts 15. Likewise, in Acts 6, the church was able to recognize people who had ability in serving and that they were filled with the Spirit of God and filled with wisdom. And so mature leadership in a church often is able to recognize and discern the giftedness of other people. And so the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 2 that spiritual men can discern spiritual truth. And so if you have a particular spiritual gift and older godly men and women don't think you do, you should reevaluate and take a moment. Now, that's the context. Remember, every text has a context. And so that brings us to our passage today in verses 6 through 8. If you're using a note-taking outline, if you're online, you can print out the entire bulletin every week. I encourage you to do it before the service starts. But there's a note-taking outline for those first-timers right there in your bulletin. Paul is going to repeat himself. And so I'm going to repeat what Paul says. If that causes you to yawn, it tells me you've lost perspective. But there's some new truth here as he repeats himself, so don't miss it. Three simple truths in fitting into God's local church. First, God's gifts are given by grace. He underscores it again, that God's gifts are given by grace. In verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
Now, the Greek word for gift, and in this context, in reference to a spiritual gift, is the word charisma. You can see the Greek uh, letters and its rendering. And if you look at the word right below it, charis, it looks very similar, doesn't it? That's the word for grace. And so sometimes Paul speaks of what we call the grace gifts, because the gifts that you have are given by grace. And we could add a third word, chi, alpha, rho, alpha, kara, and that's the Greek word for joy. And that's also, as I relate in the course on spiritual gifts, I go through uh, five ways in which you can discern what your spiritual gift is. And one of the ways is where do you find joy? Look, if you have the gift of uh, administration, you're not a miserable person every time you have to administrate some event in the church. If you have the gift of serving, it's like, oh man, I gotta serve, how awful, unless you're out of fellowship with God. There's a sense of joy, there's a sense of fulfillment, and isn't God good to make it that way? That when you are living out of the area in which he has gifted you, there's a deep sense of joy. So gifts are by grace and they certainly bring joy. Now, again, spiritual gifts are not earned. They are given by grace. And so grace, by its very nature, is something that is unmerited. Remember what Paul said in the previous chapter in Romans 11 and in verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You understand what he's saying? He's saying what makes grace grace is you don't merit it. You don't earn it. You don't bribe God with some work. You're saved, how? By grace through faith. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Works are just a fruit of conversion. They're not the means to conversion. And if you're listening to me and you think in some way, shape, or form, you're going to get into heaven by your works, you'll spend an eternity without God. Please hear me. I was speaking to someone recently in Costa Rica who found Christ through our live stream, and they asked if they could do a FaceTime appointment, and so we did. And she said, you know, I grew up in the church, and I always loved Jesus. I always knew he died on the cross. But when you asked me how sure I was that I'd go to heaven, I said 75%. I said, well, why were you 75%? Because in the back of your mind, you thought you weren't good enough, and you needed to do more. That's exactly right. I said, then you hadn't yet believed. Look, you only get saved once, just like there's only one physical birthday, there's only one spiritual birthday, but there is no spiritual birthday until you come to the point in your life where you admit there's zero you can do, and Christ did it all. It's by grace, and if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God either saves you all by himself without any help from you, or he will not save you at all. And so salvation in heaven is not a reward to the righteous. It is a gift to the guilty. And so he underscores two practical truths for us. Number one, concerning these grace gifts, you are not to have a lesser view of yourself. Now listen to your pastor. Very often Christians take the mindset of the business world and they project it into the church. They think the important people are the upfront leadership types whom everyone knows. And so they think, well, that guy's important, but nobody knows me. You know, the evangelist, the missionary, the preacher, maybe even the ABF leader, the television celebrity, the author, he's important, but who am I? 
And we think that sometimes God looks down from heaven and says, oh, there's Joe. You know, look at Joe. He's got a great ability. He's good with numbers. He's a leader. He's got a certain charisma. And I'm going to bless him and make him a pastor. It doesn't work that way. Gifts are not merited. And sometimes someone say is a professional business leader, and we think they make a good leader in their church. They might be a disastrous leader. We've just seen that in a major Christian institution, person who is not gift or qualified to take the position. There's growing apostasy all across America. We're even putting unbelievers into positions of leadership, or someone's a teacher at school, and, oh, gifted teacher, make a great Sunday school teacher, could be a disastrous Sunday school teacher if God hasn't given them the gift of teaching. But look, God gives gifts according to His grace, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them. He's not talking about saving grace here, He's talking about gifting grace. You don't determine your spiritual gift. God chooses what your spiritual gift is. He says here, God has allotted God who? It's a reference contextually to God the Father. God the Father has allotted to each a measure of faith. But not only does God the Father give spiritual gifts, in the book of Ephesians, another central passage, we're told God the Son gives spiritual gifts. Listen to Ephesians 4 and verse 8. Therefore, it says, and he quotes the Old Testament of Messiah, when he, Messiah, Christ, ascended on high, that's his ascension, he led captive a host of captives, and he, meaning Jesus, gave gifts to men. Wait a minute, Paul just said God the Father gave gifts. Now he says God the Son gives spiritual gifts, and that's the context, of course, of this passage. It's dealing with the subject of spiritual gifts. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Holy Spirit gave spiritual gifts. Remember 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11? But one and the same Spirit works all these things. What things? Spiritual gifts. Distributing to each one individually. How? Just as He wills. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And by the way, because the members of the... We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so very often in Scripture, each member of the Godhead is attributed to a function. Who created the world? Genesis says God the Son did. Job says God the Spirit did. Colossians says God the Son did. All three members and in numerous places in Scripture are credited with the creation of the world. What I'm trying to say here is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit determined your spiritual gift as He sovereignly and providentially decided and so you should not kick against that, neither should you minimize it, because He is a wise God. Can you say amen to that? Listen, if you compare yourself to other people, rather than being satisfied and thankful for the way God made you and gifted you, you will minimize your importance and God won't be able to use you. And typically when we begin to doubt the importance the way God has placed us in the body of Christians, we tend to suppress the expression of that spiritual gift rather than using that spiritual gifts. So God wants you to know that these are grace gifts. And so we're not to have a lesser view of ourselves, point B there in your outline. You're not to have an exalted view of yourself. So understanding the grace given to us in our gifting will help you to see that you are an equal 
And it will prevent you from either underestimating your role in a church or overestimating your importance. So viewing one gift as more important or more special than another spiritual gift is totally contrary to the principle of grace. And we live in a day of celebrity Christianity where sometimes leaders even expect certain preferential treatments. And they ignore the importance of other members in the body of Christ. Now, it is true that when the church gathers, there are greater and lesser gifts in terms of the worship service. And it's important you think your way through this because you can come to some false conclusions if you take a verse out of its context. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31, Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 14 Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, you might read those verses and say, look, if spiritual gifts have nothing to do with my choice, but are sovereignly determined by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as He gives to each one just as He wills, then why does He tell me to desire the greater gifts and especially that you may prophesy? Because these are verbs not in the singular, but in the plural. He is speaking to a church that when they gathered together for the worship service, they were putting a premium on the wrong gifts in the worship service rather than the greater gifts for the expression and growth of the body of Christ. And so you learn from 1 Corinthians 14, they were exercising tongues when they came together. And prophecy or preaching took a back seat. Tongues and the sign gifts, that's a sermon in itself. And if you want to study it, go to the course on spiritual gifts at searchthescriptures.org. Look at section number six, and I deal with sign gifts in the New Testament. There are four, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracle, and healing. And those were temporary gifts. Now, God can still do miracles and can still heal, but through an individual, contrary to these guys who run around the country bilking people out of money, ripping people off, doing all kinds of phony baloney, gimmicky kind of things, telling you it's a miracle. They're liars, they're deceivers. They're the people described in the book of Jude and 2 Peter 2. There were some gifts that were temporary, foundational for the church. And so the church came together and they did the miracle gift of tongues. The problem was is that preaching the Word of God was taking a backseat. And so he tells them, listen, when the church comes together, you need to desire the greater gifts. He doesn't say when he speaks of greater and lesser gifts that some people are greater and other people are less than great. No, 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 no. He is simply speaking about the expression of those different gifts. Every person is critical for the operation of a local assembly. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, that is, or even Christ. We need to grow up. That's what he says. We need to mature. From whom the whole body, you know the context of this passage. He started in verse 11 on the subject of spiritual gifts. And he spoke of some of the leadership gifts in the church. God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. That's one gift, pastor-slash-teacher. And he gave these gifts for the equipping of the church to do the work of the ministry. But he reminds them that in spite of these leadership gifts, 
Every person is critical. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So in God's economy, there are no insignificant gifts, and for that reason, there are no insignificant people in the local church. Every joint, every person, each individual part is necessary for the proper functioning of the body. So don't deprecate yourself by thinking that you're not needed but neither think you're more special or more important because maybe you have a leadership gift in the church. God is crystal clear that each and every individual part is essential to the maturity of the body. So number one, he is underscoring, as he's already discussed earlier in this chapter, that God's gifts are given by grace. Number two, he reminds us that God's gifts are to be used. He gives them that you might employ them. Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's the judgment of the lost. It's called the great white throne judgment. There's the judgment of the just, the famous seat of Christ, where every single person within the sound of my voice, if you've been born again, you're going to give an account for your service. And one of the areas of stewardship that God will look at is how you use your spiritual gift. You say, I don't even know there are spiritual gifts. Well, you better find out because you're going to give an account someday, and you can find out. So notice, gifts are to be used. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, let me make two observations from the truth found in this verse. First, it's important, point A on your outline, because we have differing gifts, do not project them. Because we have differing gifts, do not project them. Verse 6 plainly tells us, since we have gifts that differ, and if we do not recognize this, then we will be guilty of what I like to call gift projection. If you do not recognize the truth that God has wired us together differently, then you might project your God-given ability on someone else. Gift projection is when God gives you a particular spiritual gift and you expect another person with the same intensity, effectiveness, passion, enthusiasm, and fruitfulness to do what God has gifted you to do. And so, say you have the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy is a gift that thinks about people's physical needs, especially those who are suffering and hurting. And you wonder, why is it that no one else wants to be involved in the nursing home ministry that I'm in? Why doesn't Joe or Sally or Fred want to come and visit the sick people in the hospital with me? And the reason they don't share your enthusiasm in the same effectiveness in that particular ministry is because God hasn't gifted them in that ministry. And so the biblical correction to gift projection is to recognize what this verse says, that God gives gifts that differ and that we need to appreciate the diversity within the body of Christ. But let me say parenthetically, that does not mean that you don't have that responsibility. And so interestingly, out of the 20 gifts in the New Testament, 16 are non-signed gifts. And out of those 16 non-signed gifts, there's a common responsibility for every single believer. And so you may not have the gift of mercy, but you as a believer are called to show mercy. 
Now, it doesn't mean that just because you don't have that gift, you don't have that responsibility. You do. So it's important that we distinguish a spiritual gift from uh, a spiritual responsibility, just like a spiritual gift, say, from a spiritual office. Let me give you an example of a gift versus an office. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In other words, God might call someone to serve in the office of elder who is not gifted at preaching and teaching. Now, they have matured enough so that as you look at the qualifications for an elder, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, they are sound in doctrine and they are apt to teach. That's a mark of spiritual maturity as the writer of the Hebrews underscores. But there may be an elder, say, who is not gifted as a teacher or with the gift of pastor teacher. And so just like you distinguish a spiritual gift from a spiritual office, you need to distinguish in your thinking a spiritual gift from a spiritual responsibility. And so, for instance, someone might falsely assume, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to share my faith. I had a woman tell me that years ago in our church. She said, I don't like to come to Easter Blitz. You're always talking about winning people to Jesus. I don't like to do it. Sadly, this was a leader in our church, her husband. I don't like to do it because God hasn't gifted me to do it. And what she failed to distinguish, is, and I wanted to help her, was between a spiritual gift and a spiritual responsibility. Look, there are dozens of commands in the New Testament given to the entire body of Christ to win the lost. I mean, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Implication, if you're not fishing for men, you're really not truly following Christ. And that's why I've underscored in recent weeks in our discipleship course how, how people hide behind go make disciples and they go, I'm just doing Bible study. Why? Because they don't really want to share their faith. And it's a safe place to be where they don't really have to trust God and believe God for the difficult. So while you may learn to share your faith from someone with the gift of evangelism, that's one of the responsibilities of that gift to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's quite different, understand, between the responsibility you have. And so someone with the gift of evangelism might in their lifetime see thousands of people to come to Christ, where someone else who doesn't have that spiritual gift, but they're faithful as much as they know how, they sow seed, they try to share a testimony as much as they can explain the gospel, they might see just a few dozen people in their whole life come to Christ. Again, like with mercy, there are people in our church who have the gift of mercy, and some of them, I see them out there in the food pantry. And they just so care about these people who have great needs. Some of them, every time there's a sick person, there's a few people in the church I can go up and ask them, hey, how's such and such? And they already know. They're right on top of it. Why? Because God's called them to do that. And yet, while you may not have the gift of mercy, you have the responsibility. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So know, too, that to effectively use your spiritual gift, you can also help someone else carry out their spiritual responsibility. So someone with the gift of evangelism might spur someone with the gift of mercy to at least carry out that responsibility, and someone with the gift of mercy might spur someone with the gift of evangelism to carry out their responsibility to show compassion. Now, while I'm not really big on categorizing gifts, if you have taken my spiritual gifts course, because in it, and I did my doctoral dissertation on this subject, so I've given it a lot of thought and study. 
Um, I'm not big on necessarily categorizing the gifts because there's crossover with every category. So people speak of the temporary gifts versus the permanent gifts or the sign gifts and the serving gifts and the speaking gifts. And maybe that's probably the best of the three, sign, speaking, serving. In either case, don't miss gift versus responsibility. There are people in the body of Christ who have the gift of giving. We're all called to give a tithe. There are people in the body of Christ who have the gift of serving. Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. There are people in the body of Christ, one of the gifts given is hospitality. But listen, a mark of maturity, 1 Timothy 3 says, is that we show hospitality. There are some who have the gift of discerning spirits. A mark of spiritual growth is you're able to discern between good and evil. There are people who have the gift of teaching, but the writer of the Hebrews can say, by this time, you all ought to be teachers. There's some basics that you ought to be able to communicate. So number one, you want to be careful not to project your giftedness on someone else. Number two, I learned from verse six, because we have gifts, we are expected to use them. God wants us to use these gifts. Again, he says, each of us is to exercise them, these gifts, accordingly. What good is it to discover your spiritual gift and to have a proper perspective on your gift if you don't use it? The bottom line for the Apostle Paul is, where are you going to serve? Sometimes I'll ask a fellow member of CBC, well, how are you doing in your Christian life? Occasionally someone said, well, you know, I'm, I'm just frustrated on my walk with the Lord. And typically I will ask, well, where are you serving the Lord Jesus? What are you doing in this fellowship? And more than once I'll have a brother or sister in Christ say, well, I attend Community Bible Church, but I don't serve anywhere. Is it any wonder they are frustrated? God gave you a gift or ability on your spiritual birthday that he wants you to use in the local church. And that's where the emphasis is. Look, when I worked in a parachurch ministry, I began to study the scripture for the first time on my own. And I saw God's plan is a local church. And that my involvement, even as a full-time missionary with a parachurch ministry, could never usurp my involvement in the local assembly. God wants you to serve in the local assembly. To each of us has been given a gift, and he says we are to exercise them, meaning the gift, accordingly. In other words, Paul's saying, just don't stand there. Do something. Well, I won't do anything until I discover my spiritual gift. Then you'll never find your spiritual gift. One of my professors in seminary used to often say, even God can't direct a parked car. Listen, put yourself in first gear. Find out what God says about spiritual gifts. Take the spiritual gifts course. Take the spiritual gifts test. Talk to one of the pastors in the church. Find out. Don't sit around until you feel something. Get in first gear. When you're walking down the hallway and you see a piece of trash on the floor, don't say, well, do I have the gift of serving? Maybe I shouldn't pick this up. <laughs> no, pick it up. If you see some child wandering around the building and they're obviously lost, don't say, well, do I have the gift of mercy? No, help that child. If you come to check your child in at one of the windows and you say, hey, I guess some worker must have been sick and someone didn't show up and Man, they've got more kids than I've ever seen in here. If you're an approved worker, say, hey, you need some help. Let me come in and help you. Listen, those wiggling mass of future leaders need good care and help, and we try to provide the best, but sometimes we just need more help. 
And very often it's some act of availability to a common responsibility that will lead to the discovery of your spiritual gift. I mean, think about it. Philip, I think, is a good example. You find him first in Acts chapter 6, a man filled with the wisdom of God and filled with the Holy Spirit, and God uses him to serve tables. What if Philip said, I'm above serving tables. I'm not going to serve tables. I have no doubt God never would have used them to evangelize the Samaritans. And I have no doubt that when you come to the end of Philip's life, remember Acts covers 30 years, he is termed Philip the evangelist. If he were unwilling to do a common responsibility, he never, I'm sure, would have found his spiritual gift. So don't wait to discover your spiritual gift. Begin, start with finding out your common responsibility. And I think it's part of God's goodness and kindness that he's put pause on our full-blown expression of all our meetings because it's really a chance for some of us to ask, what am I doing in terms of the common responsibilities? See, it's really safe, say, if you're an usher and say, well, I'm an usher. That's all I need to do. When was the last time you tried to win someone to Jesus? That's a common responsibility. And so we need to sometimes reflect, think. And let me just say parenthetically while we're at it, when you think about using your spiritual gift, typically in any local assembly, the expression of that will happen in one of three realms. One, what I call the structured sphere the event sphere, and the personal sphere. First, the structured sphere. What's the structured sphere of ministry? It represents an area of ministry in the local church that's ongoing. It's either weekly, bi-weekly, possibly monthly. It's a picture of the ongoing needs in the body of Christ. It might be a Titus mom. It might be someone who works weekly at the food pantry. It might be one of our Awana teachers. It might be someone who serves our infants in nursery. It might be a parking lot attendant. It might be someone who puts together the new member lunches. Someone who leads in children's choirs, a greeter. Someone who, I mean, I think it's just a, a dozen people in each service every Sunday that run the light board, the sound board, the, the, the mixing board, the, the live stream, the cameras. You know, every person needs a place of ministry, and the first place to ask is in the structured sphere. Now, let me just say, when you serve in the structured sphere, it's a real test. You see, some people are real comfortable just doing just about nothing. They show up at a meeting every once in a while, and, you know, I do something. Anybody can do that. It's when you have to wait. I see some of these adults in their 60s and 70s who for 20 years have been serving in Awana. I see him come out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and year after year. I respect and admire those people so greatly. And so many others in other structured spheres of ministry. Someone some said to me, well, I don't really have any friends in the church. You see, that person was telling on themselves. When you start serving in one of the structured spheres of ministry, you're going to build some friendships. You're going to know some faces and learn some names. It's impossible not to. And it's the structured ongoing ministries that really test your commitment and your servant spirit. And it forces you to depend on him when you have no strength left. And these people, I have no doubt, will have the greatest reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, someone told me not long before COVID, they said, Pastor, 
I'm going to leave the church for some, six months. There's this pastor who's doing this series, and you know, I really want... He was telling on himself. What was he saying? He was saying, I could leave for six months and not be missed. That's sad. You ask some people, where do you serve? Well, I go to a woman's Bible study. I come in here, you preach on Sunday. And what that says is you have no real ownership in the local assembly. Now, beyond the structured sphere, there's what we might call the event sphere of service. And these are times for special, periodic, short-term outreaches or projects of one kind or another. And it might be to meet some need in the church, the community, or even the broader world. We had some men after a hurricane. They got in their trucks and had some trailers, and they went to minister to some people's physical needs and to share the gospel with them. That's an event sphere. We have the bereavement ministry. Every time we have a funeral, and there's some women in our church who just care and love for these families who are grieving. That's the bereavement sphere. There's the Easter blitz. Once a year, eight days before Easter, we go out two by two and we invite people in the community to come to our Easter services, people who won't typically go to church but might respond to an Easter invitation. We have our vacation Bible school. One week out of the whole year, we had over 800 children at the last one we had. You know, those are opportunities in the event sphere. And I might say the event sphere sometimes is an excellent chance to possibly test or develop what you think you might have as a spiritual gift. So you say, Pastor Carl, I, I think I might have the gift of administration. So what I might say is, hey, look, we've got this missions conference coming up, and, and rather than test the whole thing on you, and if you're not absolutely sure, I'll team you up with someone that I know has the gift of administration, and you can work alongside, and you can kind of test the waters to see if indeed God has gifted you in that particular area. And let me say, beyond the structured sphere and the event sphere, there's always the personal sphere of ministry. And the personal sphere represents just the spontaneous opportunities that God gives you to serve His people in unexpected ways. God has unplanned opportunities, and when you're walking in the fullness of the Spirit, He'll drop those on you. And you need to be sensitive to those spontaneous. It might be, a, it might be a, just a common responsibility. Let's say you have the common responsibility, which we all do, to share your faith. I could illustrate it with every gift, but let me just look at the common responsibility of evangelism. It might be you even have a gift in that area. Well, you might say, well, I want to bring lost people to meet the pastor. We have a woman in our church who repeatedly, time after time after time, brings lost people to meet the pastor. And some of these lost people find the Lord is their Savior, not baptize them. Just baptize someone today. See, that's, the, that, that's just that opportunity. Uh, someone else in the area of evangelism, they might say, well, you know, I, I want to uh, come on the Easter Blitz. Fantastic. Great opportunity. I want to invite someone to our Fall Festival Friend Day. That's something we all can do. And God willing, November 1st, we're going to have both. And yes, our fall festival will look different this year. No jumpers, you know, cram all these kids in here, you know, COVID center, and we'll have them jump around with each other. No, we're not going to do that. But, but that's an opportunity. You say, I don't come to that. Why not? I'm too old. You're too old to win people to Jesus? I hope not. 
Or sometimes in the personal sphere, my wife and I were in a restaurant and this person came by and we had the chance to talk to him about Christ. And as she repeatedly tells me, it wasn't about eating in this restaurant, was it? I said, no, it wasn't. God had us here to talk to this person about the Lord Jesus. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, exercise them accordingly. That's true of your gift. That's true of your responsibility. Meeting with a brother recently and his kids are grown up. They're adults. They're unbelievers. And he's wanting to win them to Jesus. And he's certainly wanting to win these grandchildren to Christ. He said, what do I do? I said, well, would your, would your kids restrain you from sharing? No, but, you know, they're just involved in all this stuff, and I just got to get their attention. Well, how do you get their attention? Well, sometimes we go out in the woods, and okay. I said, why don't you, in light of their age, listen to my course on evangelism, and I pinpointed one aspect of the course, how to share the gospel with a child. I said, I want you to listen to it and listen to it. I want you to share it with your wife over and over and over again until you can communicate through the wordless booklet, The Plan of Salvation. And then you get those kids out there in the woods. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them someday, probably sooner, he's in his 70s, sooner than you realize your granddaddy's going to be gone. But this is the most important thing to me that you find Jesus Christ. See, that's the personal sphere. And it might be out of a gift. It might be out of a responsibility. Third and quickly, beyond the fact that God's gifts are given by grace and are to be used, God's gifts are varied. They are varied. To make his point that we need to be using our gifts, Paul gives a sampling of some spiritual gifts. And he gives a sampling from two major areas in which spiritual gifts are given today and can function. First, he gives gifts to expound the Word of God. He gives gifts to expound the Word of God. Now, generally speaking, the gifts listed here by Paul have to do with expounding the Word of God. And then he'll give some gifts that have to do with expanding the work of God. By the way, there are only 20 gifts. People often ask me, is this a completely list? Absolutely. You can't think of another gift that's not in the 20, that's not a natural talent. You can't think of a gift that is needed for the maturation of the body. God gave us a complete list in these four passages, and we go through the definition and their expressions and their examples in the spiritual gifts course that some of you might want to take. So he begins by listing four specific spiritual gifts that are involved in expounding the Word of God. Notice verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. So if you have the gift of preaching or prophecy, then you ought to major in that gift. Now, some think that the gift of prophecy has ceased because it is true in the early church, as 1 Corinthians teaches, that it had two sides to it. There was a revelational side to it because, again, the canon of Scripture was not completed. They couldn't say, well, what does Paul say on marriage in Ephesians? He hadn't written Ephesians yet. And so there are some members in the body who are direct conduits of revelation. But not only were they direct conduits, they would take that revelation and they would expound it. And by the way, that's exactly what the Old Testament prophet did. God would give him direct revelation, and then he'd say it over and over and over and over again until the people got it. 
Well, while the revelational side of prophecy has ceased with the completion of Scripture, and I know there are people who run around the country who say, God spoke to me, and they put God in the first person like he sent them an email from heaven. That's nonsense. That's dangerous. That's what every cult is built on. Sola Scriptura, Latin for Scripture alone, it is a completed canon. We're not to go beyond it. Everything by which we can evaluate any idea is found right here in this book called the Bible. But a person with the gift of preaching is to expound the Word of God, and he is to foretell what God has said. And the gift of prophecy is basically a gift that is involved in the proclamation of the truth. He is speaking with power and clarity what God has said. And many pastors have the gift of prophecy along with the gift of pastor-teacher. And if a person is exercising the gift of prophecy in a true sense, they'll talk about Jesus. It won't be about them. Here, preachers, men, this sermon isn't about Jesus. This is about you. The spirit, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's about Jesus. And if you want to tell something about you that will help them to know Jesus, fine and good. But a sermon, if it's done properly, is ultimately to point people to Jesus. So prophecy deals with the proclamation of the truth. Verse 7, he said, if service in his serving. So the gift of serving, also called the gift of helps in the New Testament, expounds God's word in that it's the incarnation of truth. It's putting into shoe leather the Lord Jesus. He that would be great among you must be the servant of all. Christ came not to be served, the Scripture says, but to serve. And we're all called to be servants, but there are some people who have this gift. And every time we have some large event, I know who they are. All I have to do is spend 90% of the people are gone. These 10%, maybe they've recruited a few to help. They stay behind long before everyone else is gone. Why? Because they have the gift of serving. That's just what they do. And they are incarnating the truth of God's Word. Look further, verse 7, or he who teaches and is teaching. And so this third gift emphasizes the explanation of the truth. The teacher, also a similar gift called pastor-teacher, which is one single gift. He uses the word in this and this and this and this. And then when he brings at the end of the phrase pastor and teacher, he uses a different connective word, which in Greek tells you that's one gift. So there's a gift of teaching. There's a gift of pastor-teacher. And that person explains the meaning of God's word in a way that people can understand it. You say, well, that's just his interpretation of it. No, he exercises the hermeneutical principles that are contained within Scripture. Within the Scripture itself, God teaches us how to expound the Scripture. He gave examples on principles of interpretation. So prophecy, by the way, is similar to teaching, but the prophet usually wants to bring home one single major point where the teacher wants to bring home some of the details. Verse 8 continues, or he who exhorts, and his exhortation. So prophecy deals with the proclamation of truth, serving the incarnation of truth, exhortation, the, uh, the uh, intention of truth, teaching the explanation and exhortation the intention. What's the intention? See, someone with the gift of exhortation kind of stirs up the pot. They're like a, a poker in a fire. And they encourage, they advise, they rebuke, they exhort. 
They try to move this person, and often, most often, the gift of exhortation is done one-on-one, though it could be done in a group setting. It's most often done one-on-one. And by the way, these are the people who make the best counselors in the church. We need Christian counseling today. Most of what happens under the umbrella of Christian counseling is not Christian counseling at all. Jay Adams wrote a book called Competent to Counsel 40 Years. He spoke of neuthetic counsel. Neutheo means to encourage, to exhort. In other words, what he was saying was we need counseling that is based on the Word of God, calling people to do what God has called them to do. And that's what the gift of exhortation does. It talks about how you work out the truth in your life. So after he gives these four gifts on expounding the Word of God, he gives three additional gifts on expanding the Word of God. Point B, he gives gifts to expand the work of God. Verse 8, he who gives with liberality. He is reminding us about the outreach of the gospel. And one expression the gospel can be extended is through giving. All of us have the responsibility to give at least a tenth of what God's put in our hands. But someone with the gift of giving is able to believe God far beyond the tenth. And they're often concerned with not how much they can keep, but how much they can give away. And God often makes them conduits of wealth because he knows he can trust them with wealth. And so there's not only the gift of giving, but then there's the gift of guiding. Notice the next gift. It's called the gift of leadership. He who leads with diligence. And so people with the gift of leadership help oversee some aspect of God's work. And he says, do it with diligence, not half-heartedly. It's disgusting when the church does something and it's not done with excellence. Everything we do to the glory of the Lord Jesus ought to be done first class. And so those with gifts of leadership or even administration ought to step up and say, here's how God has gifted me in this area. Where can I plug in? So beyond giving and guiding, there's also going. And that's seen in the next gift. Notice, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There are some who have this gift of going to those who are in distress. Many unbelievers. I've been privileged to introduce people to Christ because someone with the gift of mercy went ahead of me, cared for them in their physical need. They came to this church, heard the gospel, and got saved because of it. I think of Robert Pierce. He had the gift of mercy. He was the founder of World Vision in 1950, and then in 1970, he founded Samaritan's Purse. And God used him to bring tens of thousands of people into the kingdom. And when people have the gift of mercy, he says, do it with cheerfulness. You don't need some old grump at the hospital bed. You need someone who's spirit-filled who's going to give some perspective. A joyful heart, Proverbs says, is good medicine. Now, let me apply this and we'll close. Number one, three applications. Number one, recognize that all gifts, all these gifts work together. All these gifts work together. I've said several times these past few weeks that we need each other, that just as every part of your physical body is necessary, we need each other. In pre-COVID, we were running wide open. Be patient. We're getting there. You just need to trust the leadership of this church and God's timing for it. But I could think, say, of a reception in the fellowship hall, and someone drops a tray of desserts. And the gift of prophecy says, just learn a lesson from it and be more careful next time. And someone with the gift of mercy says, oh, don't feel so bad. That could happen to anybody. And someone with the gift of serving says, here, let me help you clean it up. 
And someone comes along with a gift of teaching. Well, the reason it fell is you're out of balance and you had too much stuff on this side versus the other side. And someone with the gift of exhortation comes along and says, don't worry, there's plenty left. And someone else with the gift of giving says, hey, look, I can go buy some more desserts at the store. And, and if you have the gift of leadership, you say, Jim, get the mob. Mary, you, 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 you get the vacuum cleaner. And, you know, that's, it just all works together. Which one is right? They're all needed. Every single gift in the body of Christ is needed. Secondly, and I'll leave it at this, realize we all have a place to serve. We all have a place to serve. If you come here week after week just to participate in the worship service and you serve nowhere, you're welcome to do that. No one's going to put a gun to your head and serve. But that's not what I want for you. Every new member's lunch, I give them a a ministry outlet booklet, and it lists some 30 ministries that functions under the umbrella of Community Bible Church. And I said, if you think you have an affinity or interest in one of these, there's the contact person, the email, just call them, they'll set you up. Pastor Larry's been put in on this ministry fair. He got canceled due to COVID. And, you know, all 30-some ministries set up within the church. You go talk to some live person. What do you do? How do you sign up? And so you need to find a place to develop and use your gift. You need to be faithful. And some of God's people are just lazy. They've lost perspective. They've just lost perspective. Remember Timothy? Paul said to Timothy, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Now, his reason for neglecting it is not what a lot of people are. And let me just say, Timothy was a young pastor. I talked to a lot of young pastors, and they've got challenges that didn't exist when I came into the ministry. I came into the ministry in 1978, and we had problems. Now some guy goes into the ministry, and he walks into a tsunami of problems that I have to face every day. Four problems I had to deal with on Saturday. We live in a tsunami world of problems. You need to pray for your pastor if you're listening to me. Whoever your pastor is, wherever he is, you need to earnestly pray for your pastor. Timothy neglected the spiritual gift. Why? Because he was intimidated. There were some older people in the fellowship who put him down, and Paul says, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Don't neglect your spiritual gift. And then he'll remind him in his second letter to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. Keep it ablaze. Stir it up. Use it. And some of us used to serve. And we've taken an extended vacation. Look, I want to serve until the day I drop dead or Jesus comes back. If I can speak for the Lord Jesus and my mind is still clear, I will do it until the day I die. Because I am going to meet the Lord Jesus in heaven someday. And when he looks at me, I want him to say, well done, thy good and faithful doulos, slave, servant. Others have taken for granted the many gifts and benefits that God has given them. And unless you avail yourself to the ministry of the Lord, you will have deep regrets. Look, there are people who come here, I call them sponge Christians. They just come to soak up. But don't squeeze them because they don't want to give out. One of my spiritual gifts is the gift of preaching. And if you told me when I was first saved that I had the gift of preaching, I would have said, you're crazy. 
I remember I was about three, year, three weeks old in the Lord, and we're in a Bible study, and, and the guy leading the Bible study asked me to pray. Look, I'd never prayed out loud before, unless it was a memorized rote prayer, and I got dozens of those. I can still say them. You want me to pray? I want you to pray. So I prayed. Not a memorized prayer, but as best as I knew to pray. And three months later, a bunch of guys on the floor came to Christ. I just thought you were supposed to share your faith. What amazed me is these guys were coming to Christ, and I had five new believers on the floor. And I said to this guy on staff with Crusade, I said, you know, can you come and lead a Bible study? He said, look, man, I'm overworked. you got to lead it. Me? I was 30 minutes ahead of those guys. I'd pour through the material as best I could, and some three months after that, he asked me to share my testimony in the dorm. We showed this film by this guy, Andre Cole, who was an illusionist, and about 100 students came, and I was supposed to stand up and share my testimony. I was scared spitless. But I used the proportion of my faith that God had given me at that point to exercise that. And then in my senior year, he said, I want you, there's 50 students, they meet here once a week, I want you to teach the Bible. And I began to realize that God had gifted me for this. God had made me for this. Now, I don't know what your spiritual gift is, but there are no insignificant gifts and there are no insignificant people in the body of Christ. Are you a gifted child? Nod your head, say yes. Yes, you are. And you need to find that gift and you need to use it. And some of you need to start by getting on the team. You're a floater. You're listening to me. Some, some weeks we've had all 50 states live streaming. You're a floater. You don't go to church anywhere, and you need to find a Bible-believing church that you can be a part of. lady called me this week from Asheville, became a Christian, wanted to know how to find a church. You don't know how gratifying that was. You need to find a church, and you need to join. Some of you... You're not on the team because you've never been saved. You don't have a spiritual gift because you're not spiritually reborn. And your greatest need is to humble yourself as a sinner and to call upon the Lord Jesus who died, who was buried, and who was raised for you. And you'll be born a second time. And he will help you as you begin to grow up in Christ. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for the chance that we've had to open these scripture. We pray, our Lord, for those who are within the sound of my voice who have never met you, that today would be a turning point, that someone might in simple childlike faith call upon Jesus for salvation. But for the vast majority that have already met you, Lord, help us to do some personal inventory in terms of our common responsibilities that you've called us to share, but also in terms of the stewardship of our spiritual gifts. You said everyone has at least one, some a few. No one has them all. We need each other. So help us to take inventory as it relates to this assembly of believers and how we are using those spiritual gifts. Because you love the church. That's what you organized. You died for the church. May we be good servants of you, Lord Jesus, who gave everything for us that we might serve you well. We need your grace and your help 
In Jesus' holy name we ask, amen.